have. Everybody likes hanging out together. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeeming Grace Church. And uh, for the members here, I know many of you all have been praying for me, praying for my family over the last few weeks, and just want to extend uh, our thanks to you. Thank you so much for praying for us. We really do uh, appreciate and love being part of this church family. Uh, we're going to look at Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 44. We're going to continue on in our series in the Gospel of Mark. And before we have the reading of God's Word, I want to just give you a little bit of background to what's going on. So, as we know, Jesus entered Jerusalem as the Davidic Messiah. He came in riding on a colt, and so it had all kinds of symbolism associated with that. And Messiah means anointed one. It was the recognized title of really the Jewish hopes for a deliverer. And Christ in the New Testament is the Greek equivalent. So Messiah and Christ get used uh, in an interchanged kind of way. In chapters 11 and 12 in the Gospel of Mark, it's actually sort of confrontational. Uh, the leaders of the church, I mean, of the synagogue and of the religious orders, they really were hostile to Jesus. And they came to him and they questioned him about his authority. And so in chapter 11, we saw that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came after Jesus. And then later on, the Pharisees and the Herodians came after Jesus. And then we had the Sadducees as well. So different religious groups and political groups were coming because they were all threatened and sort of disturbed by Jesus and what he was teaching and how people were following after him. And so they were threatened. They didn't like it. So they attacked him, and they were hostile towards him. And yet every time they talked to him, every time they confronted him and thought they had him with a, a gotcha moment, Jesus would respond with wisdom, insight, that was clearly far greater than theirs. And Jesus would prevail in these arguments and discussions, and he responded with wisdom. But now, in the text that we're going to see here this morning, Jesus actually goes on the offensive, he has a question of his own that pertains to the identity of the Christ. And then he provides two contrasting examples of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, one being what it doesn't look like and the other one being what it does look like. So Robbie Sawyer is going to come and read to us Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. 
And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now to open our eyes and open our hearts to the preaching of your word. Your word is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And Lord, we need your word. We need you to instruct us and to guide us. And we want to learn more about you. And we want to learn more about your son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so, Father, help us now. Be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So throughout the gospel of Mark, these religious leaders that I was mentioning before, they were, they were somewhat stubborn and resistant to the teaching of Jesus. And over and over, there are these confrontations. And as we get closer to Jesus coming to the cross, it's all sort of coming to a head. All those groups of people that I mentioned, the priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they're all, even though they're not friends necessarily with each other, although there could be some overlap, it it was one of those things, they all had a common enemy. They were all coming after Jesus. And so he was unsettling everyone in his sphere of influence. Everyone was hearing about him and people were responding, especially the leaders, because they had the most to lose if Jesus was right. And so Jesus now, in what we see in this text, he exposes the misunderstanding that the leaders had about the identity of the Christ. And then he's going to contrast different ways to live in God's kingdom as a result of what we know about Christ. And so today, we're going to listen to the teacher, Jesus. Jesus is telling us about who he is and how he thinks about life in his kingdom. So I have two very simple points today. The greatness of Christ is the first point, and then we're going to look at two contrasting responses. So the first is the greatness of Christ, and that's found in verses 35 to 37. In verse 35, we see that Jesus is in the temple with his disciples and those religious leaders and the crowd. So it's a lot of people, and they're all there listening to Jesus. And he questioned them about the Christ. And Jesus is sitting there going, hmm, What were the religious leaders expecting? See, he saw something in them that he knew was not right. Because if they had really understood who the Christ was, they wouldn't have been so hostile against him. They actually would have welcomed him. They would have venerated him. They would have worshipped him and given him all the honor and glory that he deserved. But because they were hostile to them, he knew that there must be something wrong in the way that they thought about the Messiah thought about the Christ because they weren't putting two and two together. They didn't see that it was him. So in verse 35, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So first of all, Jesus isn't denying that the Christ is the son of David. Rather, he's asking this question about the true identity, the full identity of the Christ and of the Christ's relationship with David. You see, the title, Son of David, emphasized Christ's human lineage. He was from David. And his role was he was the promised Messiah, the king, the long-awaited king that was going to deliver the people of Israel from the oppressive people, and at the time, the Romans, who were ruling over them, not not allowing them to worship as they wanted to, 
putting lots of restraints on them. They were God's people, but being ruled by an outside group. And so the Jews, they were longing for a deliverer, longing for a Messiah, longing for someone to come and break off those chains and let them worship God in the way that God would have them. And so they were waiting, waiting for a Messiah, the son of David. And this comes from God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So it wasn't a controversial statement at this point. There was a son of David that they were waiting for. This son of David was not controversial. It was a legitimate understanding of the scriptures. God had promised David through the prophet Nathan that David's offspring or his seed, well, God would raise a king from that line to reign on David's throne forever. So he's going to be this sort of this eternal king. So it was not just any king. This was going to be a forever kingdom that God was going to have come through the son of David. But Jesus, Jesus does not wait for an answer at this point. He now quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. This happens to be the New Testament's most frequently quoted Old Testament text. And it was a, a, a royal hymn. It was a coronation hymn for the inauguration of Israel's kings. Look what it says in verse 36, and it'll be on your screen. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so it's important to note here that Jesus notes that the Davidic authorship of the psalm. He's saying, look, I know that David wrote this. And not only did David write this, but he's speaking by the Holy Spirit. And why does he do that? Because he wants them to understand that, one, he's going back to the scriptures. And these are the divine scriptures. These are the words of God. And so David is speaking prophetically at this point about something that is to come. And David is saying that the Lord, and the first Lord means Yahweh, so God, the Lord said to my Lord, so David's Lord, Adonai, okay, that's what he's saying. He's referring to the Christ when he says my Lord. And he's describing the role of Christ as God tells it to him. He says this Christ, this Lord, is going to sit at my right hand, sit at God's right hand, which signified honor and closeness to God and legitimacy to rule. You see, this king, this Adonai, who David calls my Lord, is actually above David. He's elevated above David. And I'll say more about that in just a moment, but he sits at the right hand of God. So he's not just going to be any king. He's going to be a king closely entwined with, the, with God himself. And God tells him, I will put your enemies under your feet, meaning that God will defeat the enemies of his king. So again, this Lord is going to have a special role and a place of honor. But now Jesus asks a riddle or declares a riddle. He says in verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So if the son of David is David's Lord, how can that be? There's, there's real confusion there. It's actually shocking news because Jewish sons were not greater than their fathers. And we all know that a prince doesn't become a king until the present ruler dies. So how can David be calling this person his Lord? And by asking this question, Jesus claims the Christ is not primarily defined by the line of David. He's something greater than that. Not less than, he is from the line of David, but this Christ, this Messiah that 
that is spoken about in the Old Testament was grand, was magnificent. And there isn't just one title that you can use to describe his greatness. One of the titles is Son of David. Jesus is invoking here the thought that, have you ever thought that it's actually something more than that too? You see, the scribes and the teachers of the law, they, they, had, they had sort of blinders on when they were reading their Bibles. They didn't see the full picture. And some of that's understandable because the way the Bible is crafted, it's an unfolding story that points to Jesus. And so even back in the garden, you hear about a serpent crusher and you go, oh, well, what's that all about? Well, as the Bible unfolds, God reveals his story, his story to redeem a people for himself, a people who can't redeem themselves because of their sin against him and their inability to make themselves righteous before him, people who are lost and without hope. But God set his affections on them, and he says, no, I will redeem you, and I will send my redeemer to win you back to myself. And so there was a hope and a longing for this Messiah. And Jesus is saying, he is a son of David, but even by the way that David refers to him, he must be something more because he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus leaves a pregnant pause here. He doesn't answer his own question. The scribes don't answer it either. I think everybody was a bit perplexed. And so what's going on? Well, I think the reality is Jesus is pausing for a moment to have them stop and say, how do I think about the Christ? Do I really understand who he is and what I'm looking for and what I'm waiting for? Not only that, but I think waiting and pausing long enough might say, what don't I know? And shouldn't I learn more? Yes, the Christ is the son of David, a human king to rule and reign and deliver his people. But as I said, Jesus is angling for them to understand that he's more than that. Some of the possible answers to Christ being David's Lord are that David is Lord, uh, David's Lord um, is one who will reign over a greater kingdom than David reigned over. And so just by the scope of his kingdom, he's, he's a greater Lord. That's plausible, but probably not likely. Secondly, he could be like the figure of a son of man. Son of man is a title that Jesus loved to use. It's used 13 times in the Gospel of Mark. And so there's this idea of a son of man who's going to have dominion and power and rule and reign as well. But most commentators think that what Jesus had in mind was the idea of the Messiah, the Christ, also being the son of God. So he wasn't just a king but he was a son. He wasn't just a son of David. He was a son of God. And just prior to this, Jesus told a parable about a farmer who had a field and ultimately he sent his son, his beloved son, into that field. And those whom he sent them to killed him. And it gives us a little bit of a picture of where Jesus is going with this. And this comes right before what we see here in this text. They killed the beloved son, the heir of the landowner. Though Jesus doesn't provide an answer or make an explicit connection, Jesus embodies the long-awaited royal figure, doesn't he? It wasn't exactly what they expected. I think they wanted to see him come and overthrow the Romans immediately. But that's how it is with God's kingdom. 
we have certain perspectives of, oh, well, God's just gonna do all this stuff right away because he's God. But yet, God is actively working in so many different ways in our lives through our circumstances that often we have to step back and say, what else do I need to know about God in order to understand how he's at work in my life? If you walk through suffering or trials, you're very familiar with that. Because in our minds, we like to think of sort of the Davidic king as being, hey, he's going to come and deliver me from all my problems, which is great. And God does deliver us from our trials and our problems. But oftentimes, not as quickly as we'd like or not as thoroughly as we'd like. And quite honestly, sometimes that deliverance doesn't come until we go home to be with him. And so our expectations get stretched in these moments. We can't just think of the Messiah, of the Christ, just in a myopic kind of way. No, Jesus is trying to expand the way that people think about who the Messiah is. You see, this long-awaited royal figure, this son of God and son of David, is going to come to restore Israel and establish God's earthly kingdom. But how he does it is in a way that nobody expected Everybody expects the king to come riding in and have the victory. They don't expect the king to be hanging on a cross and to die for people's sins. And this is the greatness of Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you and I might become rich. We might receive new life because he gave his life. You see, when you have just the figure of a son of David, of this royal king, it's a very helpful thought for certain circumstances. But it doesn't cover all of life. And that's why the Bible is filled with so many different ways of describing who the Messiah is. He's the son of David. He's the son of man. He's the son of God. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And every one of those ways of describing who the Messiah is gives you another picture, another aspect, or another facet into this diamond of who Jesus is. And every time you turn that diamond and look into a different side, you see something even more glorious. You know, just a a simple illustration. Like, when you're going through, and I've been through certain things lately, just, you know, health trials. And you go through that, and you go, oh, Lord, I... I pray prayers, and and you can pray prayers of deliverance. Lord, heal me. And, And those are good prayers to pray. But when the Lord tarries, where do you go with that? Well, did God not hear me? Does God not care? Well, that's not true. No, in those moments, I need to remember that I'm also one of God's sons because the Son of God made me his own, and that made me part of God's family. I'm a co-heir with Christ, but I'm a child of God. And my Father loves me. And my Father will never leave me. And even though I might not receive deliverance in the moment that I want, I can be at peace because I know that my Father will comfort me, speak truth to me, be with me as ever-present. He'll encourage me. He'll send his people to come around me and to encourage me. You see, when your vision of who this Christ is expands, you start to realize Oh, being found in the kingdom of God is so much more glorious and so much more fulfilling than anything we could ever come up with on our own. And it's certainly greater than when we just have a very small view of who God is. The takeaway from this 
is that like the scribes, sometimes our view of God can become too small. I know that can happen with me. I can focus on just one aspect of God, but not remember all the other things that God says about himself. When I think this way, I, I miss out on so much of the goodness that God has for me. Friends, I think this text is calling us to expand our view of God. I was reading a statistic recently. I was reading a, a paper and had a, a statistic that said that roughly 19% of professing Christians read their Bible every day. And I just stopped for a second and it just made me sad. I said, Lord, please help me to not ever be one of those 81% because I know that day by day, reading God's word is what brings me life and it's what, and what God uses to reveal his son to me. And so if you're sitting there saying, hey, I want to grow and I want to understand more about who this God is, and I'd encourage you, then open up the words of the Bible because it's in the Bible that God speaks to us. God reveals not only his plan of salvation to us, but he reveals to us who the Christ is, who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings. And as we grow in our depth of understanding that everything in the Scriptures point to him, we will realize that we have an anchor for our souls, a confidence that can never be shaken because we stand on a rock. And that rock is Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage us as a church community, let's be a people of the book. Let's be a people of the word, not just so that we can check off a box or feel good about how we're doing in our spiritual life, but let's do it so that we will expand our understanding of who this Christ is. And as we understand who he is, it will explode in our hearts a sense of worshiping him. Because when our Messiah and Christ is small, typically so is our worship. But when our view of him is large and expanded, guess what? So is our worship. Jesus now goes on to make a contrast between people living in his kingdom. Two contrasting responses. And I think the first one is, well, it's all very strategically put together by Mark. But what happens here is he's comparing the religiosity of the scribes and the religiosity of a poor widow. How they live out their faith. And so he's just been talking about the scribes and what they believe. And now he actually makes a, a very strong denunciation of the scribes. Look at verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, so this is Jesus teaching to everybody there. He said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses. And the widows is going to be connected in the next part here. And for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater com uh, condemnation. And so Jesus already has the scribes in view, and he's already sort of communicating, hey, I don't think you fully understand who the Christ is. And surprise, surprise, when you have a limited or deficient understanding of who God is, you won't end up living the way that he wants you to live. And that's how it played out in their lives. They didn't really understand him, so they didn't really live for him. They didn't see how great he was, and so they certainly tried to make themselves great, didn't they? You see, the scribes lived like the world. They were in it for themselves. They were building personal empires rather than God's kingdom. And they violate the great commandment, don't they? 
Instead of loving God, they love themselves. Instead of loving their neighbors, they love themselves. Not only that, but they were hurtful to their neighbors. Jesus says, beware of these people. Keep an eye out for ungodly religious leaders. They will do you harm, and they will set you the wrong example. They won't show you how to live with kingdom living. So how can you tell if you're encountering somebody who is an ungodly religious leader? Well, he tells us here in these verses. He says that the scribes craved recognition. They had this full-length prayer shawl, and they would walk around with them, and they had showy tassels on them that I'm sure flopped around, and everybody would know, oh, there they are. So they drew attention to themselves. And they took pleasure in impressing other people. They wanted to be seen instead of seeing the needs of others. They hoped other people would recognize them and defer to them. They wanted to have the seats of honor and prestige. So if you encounter, and this is a transient area, and we know people move and go away and go to college or move to different areas. Hey, when you're in a church and you're following religious leaders, this is a warning for what, what to look out for. And Jesus gives a warning because he doesn't want his people to follow bad shepherds. We find out about this in the Old Testament too. God really went after and condemned the bad shepherds. Why? Because God places shepherds in a flock's life or lives to care for them, to know them, to feed them, to lead them, and to protect them. And so it's completely against God's ways to have shepherds who don't do that. And so he says, beware. I was talking to Mark about this section of Scripture. He said, you know, it's sort of like the red carpet at the Academy Awards. It's the kind of leaders who like to come in, and it's all about the photo op, and it's all about, you know, the gown or the, the outfit and all the jewelry and all the bling. What are those people doing? They're drawing attention to themselves. They like to sit at the tables where the camera's going to focus in right before the commercial break, right? Well, leaders can do the same thing. Leaders can draw attention to themselves. Leaders can, can want you to follow us more than we want you to follow God. What was really terrible about this situation is that these scribes were also taking advantage of the people they were supposed to serve. They were taking advantage of the poor widows. It says they devour widows' houses. It's not exactly clear what that means, but certainly it could mean that they were embezzling from their benefactors because the scribes were usually supported by the people. They were embezzling or exploiting. Whatever the exact cause was, the result is very clear. They were devouring widows' homes. Now, if you know the Old Testament, and this is a plug for knowing the Old Testament that I know Mark mentioned last week as well, see the widows and the orphans and the aliens are frequently mentioned in the Old Testament as people for whom God has a special concern. God wants his people to take care of those who can't take care of themselves, those who feel marginalized and not cared for. And so how terrible it is when a leader of God's people mistreats those very people that he's looking out for. In so many ways, the scribe's conduct is the exact opposite of Jesus, isn't it? It doesn't look like Jesus at all. No, Jesus fed the hungry. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus cared for those who couldn't care for themselves. And finally, even in their prayers, they reveal their misunderstanding of God. 
because they prayed prayers to impress others and not God. You know, Jesus defined genuine religion as love for God and love for neighbor. But the scribes who were religious leaders, well, they didn't know better and they were doing the opposite. So what's the verdict? How will God treat these leaders? He says they will receive the greater condemnation. God will not be pleased with them. By way of application, what do we do with something like that? Well, my first point of application is very simple. Be careful who you follow. Make sure that they are authentic in the way that they lead. Now, granted, there will be no perfect leaders, and we'll be the first ones to attest to that. We will make mistakes. But there should be an example worthy of following of the people that you submit yourself to when you're in a church and under spiritual leadership. Second point of application is an open invitation. If you ever see us acting this way, behaving this way, we would consider a great kindness if you would actually come and talk to us about it. We want to be good shepherds, but we also know that we struggle with sin. I like it when people like me. I want people to to look at me and think I'm a good pastor. I, I don't want that to dominate the way that I think, and I want to repent of that when it happens, but, but we're not perfect. But part of being a church family is being able to say, hey, let's help each other. And so from here in the pulpit, on behalf of the elders, this is an appeal to you, the members here of this church, is, hey, let's do this together. If you ever see us in that situation, we need you, and we want you. Because at the end of the day, the leaders are going to be judged more strictly, right? Scripture tells us that. But, but in a significant way, with the heart of the team that we have here, we want to be good shepherds here. And we want to follow the good shepherd in a way that this church is cared for. So let me close with this scene shifting to the temple treasury. The temple treasury was found in the court of the women and children. It's there at the temple complex. And Jesus goes and he sits down. And he watches everybody giving. It'd be like if I sat on the stairs here and we put some offering boxes around. And actually in the temple court there, there were probably about 13 boxes, uh, as best we can tell from some of the the literature. And each box was for a different type of offering uh, that you would give. And so just imagine Jesus sitting on the stair and there's boxes all throughout the room. And he watches the people come in and they just, they drop their money into the boxes. And some come in with large sums, and you can hear all the coins, ting, 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 you know, and they gave a lot, and they were wealthy people. And Jesus sees out of the corner of his eye, or maybe she was right in front of him, but he, he sees this one poor widow, and all he hears is tink, tink. And we don't know exactly how he knew how much was being put in, but Clearly, it wasn't much, and he describes it as being two small copper coins in verse 42. It says this, And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him. So he's sitting here, he watches this going, and he goes, Hey, come over here. I have to tell you something. You need to see this. Truly, I say to you, this means that Jesus is serious about this. He's really trying to get their attention. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. 
So this poor widow deposits what's called two lepta. It's the smallest coinage in circulation that they had. So if a denarius is a day's wage, a lepta was one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. So literally, she's just putting in hardly anything into the offering box. But her gift, it accentuates her poverty and her insignificance. She might have even been a little bit embarrassed to go and put such a small amount in. Everything about this woman is described as less, particularly compared to the scribes and the wealthy crowd. She had no husband. She obviously has very little money. She has no status. We don't know whether her house has been devoured by the scribes or others. But here's what we need to note. Her sincere, sacrificial, selfless, and genuine giving embodies true devotion to Christ. And the Lord is pleased. You see, she's living out her faith, and it wasn't about the volume of what she gave. It was about the heart that gave. You see, this poor widow had a faith that you and I need to emulate. She had a faith that trusted God in the hardest of circumstances. Being a poor widow in that culture was not an ideal situation for a lot of reasons. She was going to have to depend on God day by day for her living. And here she is in the temple treasury giving all that she had. Dink, dink. And I don't think she ever regretted putting that money in the box. Because when she put that money in the box, she was expressing a faith in God that says, I trust you with everything in my life. Which goes back to the great commandment, doesn't it? That you love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. You see, when God calls us to faith in him through Jesus Christ, he wants all of us, every part of us, the way that this woman was demonstrating that she really understand the call of God in her life and to be one of God's people is that she lived it out by giving him all that she had. And what a beautiful picture this is. Jesus calls his disciples over because he's teaching them, saying, this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. Even though the value of her offering was very small, in the divine exchange rate, she gave more than everybody else. Jesus says she put more than all those who put into the temple treasury. One commentator said that that which made no difference in the books of the temple is immortalized in the book of life. You see, God's kingdom and God's values are different than ours. The scribes thought it was all about drawing attention to themselves. This poor widow says, no, I just give God everything I have. The contrast is stark. Those who were the scribes and the religious teachers, unfortunately, they did not understand the true nature of who God is. He is holy and he is loving. He is righteous and he is merciful. He's all these different attributes and we see them all in the person of Jesus Christ who is the exact imprint of God's nature. And this is the Messiah that was standing right in front of the scribes and the leaders and all the others in the crowd. He's standing right there but they didn't have eyes to see him. But friends, by the grace of God, he has shown in our hearts the light of Jesus Christ and we see him for who he is. Let's be those people who grow in our understanding of the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ so that we would have hearts like that widow 
and say, no matter what I have, God gets it all. Because this is what Jesus commends. Jesus says that she put more than all those who put into the treasury. The value of the gift is not the amount given, but it was the cost to the giver, which reminds us of Jesus, isn't it? He gave us his all, didn't he? He didn't give miserly. He gave everything he had. He gave his life for you and for me. Others gave what they could spare, but she spared nothing. Friends, that's the essence of true discipleship in Jesus Christ. And she exemplifies true devotion to God. Her offering is not measured by the size or abundance, but by the attitude of the heart and the willingness that she had to give sacrificially. So where do we go with this part of the story? Well, we certainly see that there's a contrast between the scribes and this poor widow. And clearly the answer is, let's be like the poor widow. Let's make sure that our hearts are right with God. Let's make sure that in the way that we not only give to the church, that it be generous and sacrificial, but the way that we use our time and our talents, may we give in abundance because, friends, we have received abundance. Everything that we have, we have received from him. And he is lavish in his gifts for us. Lavish. And he just says, express your faith back to me in what you return. Giving expresses trust. The sacrifice of all she had is a beautiful example of devotion to God. And it fulfills the great commandment to love God with everything. So friends, as we conclude this time, as we've listened to the teacher, Jesus has revealed to us a little bit more about who he really is as the Christ. And he is to be worshiped and adored for all of his greatness. And he also tells us how to think about life in his kingdom. Don't live like the scribes, but let's live like this poor widow. Somebody that we can emulate and learn from because she got it right. She gave everything to God because God gave her everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can be together and we thank you for the way that your word does penetrate our hearts and helps us to be the kind of people that you want us to be. Father, I do pray that we would be a people who uh, just grow ever more in our understanding of who Jesus is so that we can worship him truly and trust in him completely. And may that trust be evidence in the way that we live our lives for the praise of his glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Mark's going to come and Lead us in the Lord's Supper.